You know, the reality of our culture and the reality of the society in which we find ourselves is an unbelievable culture, is an unbelievable culture that is built, one of the things that it is built on is in this value and of this value of speed. Somebody say speed. Our entire culture is built on speed. We love speed. We are fascinated by speed. We like for things to go faster. We do not like slow. Slow is the enemy. Slow is of the devil. Faster, faster, faster is the way to go. We live in a world that you could say is, is kind of stuck in fast forward. We live in a culture that is obsessed with speed. We spend our day trying to figure out ways to cram more and more and more into less and less time. Faster, faster, Faster. This is true of our data. We want our data, data speed to be fast. You remember the dial-up days? Anybody remember back to the dial-up days? Do you remember when your internet used to make a noise while you were waiting on it for it to queue up? We want faster data. Um, Carrie Fisher, she said this um, kind of humorously. These days, even instant gratification takes too long. Carl Honoré, in his uh, TED Talk, In the Praise of Slowness, he's considered the godfather of the slow movement. He said this, we used to dial, now we speed dial. We used to read, now we speed read. We used to walk, now we speed walk. We used to date, now we speed date. And even the things that are meant to be slow, somehow we have figured out ways to make them fast and to speed them up. This is true of food. Food was no longer okay, slow, we had to have fast food. Even this, I saw recently, um, there's actually um, offerings um, for health and fitness, for yoga, to have fast yoga. You can sign up for a fast yoga class. That just seems a little bizarre for me. Isn't the purpose of yoga to go slow? You can get fast yoga. We're even figuring out ways to have fast sex. We don't want to take our time. We want to be as quick as possible. It's not... It's not uh, okay to take our own time, and we have to even do that fast. It's a roadrunner culture. It's a roadrunner culture. We've been brainwashed with a mentality and a philosophy of time. Our Western idea of time, which there isn't anything wrong with the West, but our Western idea of time is very linear. Time is considered a resource to be managed and stewarded. We say this about time. See if you can finish this phrase. Use it or lose it. That's not a Bible verse, by the way, y'all. Benjamin Franklin, he even famously said, time is money. This creates an equation in our head that if time is scarce, then we must speed up in order to do more and more with less and less time. This creates for us the need to have quick fixes. We have a quick fix for everything. We have a quick fix, for, mechanically speaking. We have a quick fix across the board. We have even quick fixes, um, medically speaking. What is the quickest way that I can get over this situation, this illness that I find myself in? Economists say that we are living in an attention economy. Attention spans are at an all-time low in our society. I read one person this past week who said that our attention spans have reached an all-time low of just around eight seconds. After eight seconds, you're done. You're on to something else. You're scrolling on to something else. You're clicking on to something else. Marketing is now built around distraction and addiction. Which, by the way, you ever wonder why some of your best ideas and thoughts happen in the shower? 
It's the only time in your entire day, assuming that you take one shower a day, it's the only time in your day that you actually aren't distracted by outside noises and influences and actually have an opportunity in a moment to be quiet and to think. Unless that is, of course, you have a waterproof um, Apple Watch, which Shins makes you have the ability to respond to text messages in the shower. Today, we are going to learn and examine the value, this value, in our series, Life in Order, this value, still over speed, still over speed. And what I'd like to do is I would like to walk you through Psalm 46, a few verses, a selection from Psalm 46, and then we will fast forward and jump. We won't actually fast forward. We'll take our time. We will meander our way through the scriptures all the way to the New Testament until we eventually arrive at the life of Jesus. So number one, Psalm 46, and then we'll end with the life of Jesus. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it, grab it, Psalm 46. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We'll put the verses on the screens for you, and you can even grab a Bible for free in the lobby. We'd love to be able to give you one if you don't have one. Psalm 46, beginning in four, verse 4, it says this. I absolutely love this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Now, it is clear in this context from Psalm 46 that the people that this psalmist, this would have been a musician, this would have been a an artist who had been writing this psalm, which would have been a song that they would have sung in worship together. And this artist is writing a song specifically into a context and an audience that is filled with trouble. Their life is filled with trouble. Their life is filled with chaos. Their life is filled with all sorts of different kinds of distraction and anxiety. The social and the cultural climate of their day would have been incredibly unpredictable. People would have operated in fear. There would have been great angst. There would have been restlessness. There would have been busyness. There would have been distraction. And the psalmist writes into this uh, certain social context. And the psalmist talks about, in verse 4, the city of God. Now, what is the city of God? The city of God is actually Zion. It would be also called the city of David or Jerusalem, quite literally. This would have been referred to in the Old Testament as the habitation of God's people. This is where God's people would have resided. This is the city of God. There would have been life there. There would have been commerce there. There would have been family. There would have been business. There would have been interactions. There would have been worship. And this is what the psalmist says. This is a habitation of God. This is God's city. This is God's mark on the world that the entire world would see this city would see the people of God, and then they would be like a light to the nations. They would have been light in a dark world. And this is the holy habitation of the Most High, he says at the end of verse 4. This is the physical city of God, but in many ways, this is also metaphorically the city of God. And unlike other cities, this city, the city of God, needs no mayor, needs no governor, needs no Roman centurion because God is her leader. God is her protector. This city doesn't need a president. This city has God, and God is her protector, and God is her provider. And the city of God is unlike every other city on the face of the planet. Now, interestingly enough, back in ancient days, most cities would have been constructed near water. 
Either a river or a stream would have flown through the city or they would have built the city on the port or there would have been a port city on the edge of water to be able to have resources from water that were needed. And cities always had to have a water supply and many cities would even have a river that would go actually through the middle of the city. This would endure um, safe and easy access to a water supply. But interestingly enough, the city of Jerusalem actually doesn't have a river in it. The only water supply is actually a spring outside the city. Here's what God is saying. I am the river. I am the river. It's me. Metaphorically speaking, spiritually speaking, I am the river. Another psalmist in Psalm 36 verses 8 and 9 would say this. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them to drink. You give them drink, rather, from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, speaking of God. Here's what that means is that God is the river. He is the fountain in which we drink from. He is the one that supplies us with the resources that are necessary for the life in which we find ourselves. So here's how I'll say it for you. God alone can supply you with everything you need for life. God alone can supply you with everything necessary for life. You don't need a certain amount of money in your bank account. You don't need a certain amount of likes on the post that you posted yesterday. You don't need a certain kind of friend group. You don't need a certain kind of approval because in God, you find everything that you need. And when everything around you seems to dry up, God is the river that supplies you in your soul with everything that you need. And if you understand that, it will change your life fundamentally change the fabric of how you think about life. It will actually give you the ability to operate in a world and in a society and in a culture in which you look completely different than everybody else around you because you've got a different water supply in your life. You've got God himself. So let me ask you today, what do you need today? Can, can, I, can I just ask you that? What do you need today? You need approval today, you need significance, you need validation, you need pleasure, you need beauty, you need security. What do you need today? Literally, to your own, ask what you need today. What is it that you need? This past week I was operating through my own week, and I don't know if this ever happens to you, but um, you ever get sidetracked during the middle of your, your, your week? You get busy, crazy. Things start to happen, things start to pile up, and you begin to lose your focus, you begin to lose your direction, you begin to forget kind of what you're going for and why you're doing what you're doing, and you begin to chase things, and you end up chasing things, and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I go to, why, what, what, is, what is it in me that, that needs that? What is it in me that is pursuing that? What do you need today? What do you need today? You need, you need some significance in your life, you need some validation in your life, you need to feel important. What do, you, what do you need? The, the offer today is that God is the only one that can provide for you what you need. Some of you are so addicted today. Addicted to a bottle, addicted to a substance, addicted to a relationship, addicted to a career. And God's saying, I can provide you what you're looking for. I'll actually provide you what you're looking for that will set you free from all those other things. And you don't actually need them in order to have meaning and significance in your life because you have me. When you have God, you receive everything that you need for life. You have everything that you need for life. God alone can supply you with everything you need for life. 
The psalmist would go on in verse 6. Look with me at verse 6. He says this, the nation's rage. Kind of sounds like our current global society, doesn't it? The nation's rage, which means they're in turmoil, they're in distress, they're restless, they're fighting. The kingdom's totter, which means they don't have stability. The kingdoms of this world are bouncing back and forth. There isn't any stability. This is God. He utters his voice and the earth melts. This is the power of God's voice. This is the power of who our God is. So powerful. He can just utter words out of his mouth and literally melt nations. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. He's with us. He's with you. You don't need anything else. You've got God. He is with you. The Lord is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Why do you need anything else? If God is your fortress, why are you building your own? You've got God. You have him. This is a wake-up call. You've got God. You've got what you need. You don't need any of that other stuff. You've got him. Selah. We see the difference between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. We have a different king. He creates a different culture. He creates a different peace. He creates a different pace among the citizens of his kingdom. And we live and we operate in his kingdom unlike any other kingdom, any other citizens in the kingdom of the world. Because he's our king. We live and we operate under his kingship, under his lordship, under his authority, under his direction, under his provision, under his protection. Because he's our king. We don't need anybody else to be our king. Verse 8. Amen. Amen. I'm trying to preach this morning, y'all. I'm trying to preach. You got to help your preacher out. Sometimes you need to clap. Sometimes you need to say amen. Sometimes you need to say right on. Sometimes you need to say preach it. Sometimes you need to stand up on your feet and do some clapping. Verse 8, he says this. He says this. I love this. So after saying that, he says this. Come behold the works of the Lord. Behold. It's this idea of look. It's the idea of gaze. It's this idea of focus. Come behold the works of the Lord. You've been looking at other things. Now come and look at God. Behold the works of the Lord. How he has brought desolations on the earth. I mean, he just has got so much power. He just does whatever he wants to do. There isn't anything that can thwart his hand. There isn't anything that can stay his arm. He does whatever he wants. Verse 9. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. Any kind of opposition, he does. He burns the chariots with fire. There isn't an army strong enough for God. There isn't an army. There isn't a military force that can defeat God or that can oppose God. He does whatever he wants because he's the king. He's the creator of the world. The writer invites us here to come and look at God. All his works, all the things that he has done in the world, all the ways that he has triumphed, all the ways that he has led us and protected us and provided us. Just look at God. Just look at God. This is the idea of focus. It's the idea of focus. Zeroing in on something. Focusing in, taking the lens of your camera and zooming in on an object and focusing your gaze and your attention at that one particular thing. It means to admire God, to admire him and to reflect on him, to think on him, to focus, to put your attention on him. Just look at everything that he has done. Can I ask you a question today? What have your eyes been on lately? What have your eyes been on lately? We, got a t- we have such a, I have such a tendency for my eyes to look at all sorts of different things. I've told you this before, but I've got this like crazy disease. I walk into the room and I find 47 things that are wrong with the room. 
I notice every thread count that's wrong in the seat cha- in the chairs that you're sitting on, and every uh, every piece of dust that's on the the ground, and all the I'm not going to keep going on, so you stop, so you don't look around at the room, but all the things that. And it's like, I could look at those. I could. I could put my attention on those things. Or I could think about all the amazing things that are good about this room. Think about all the things that God's going to do in this room today. Think about all the people that God's going to bring in here and that are going to sit in these seats and they're going to have their lives changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. i got a choice to make. I've got a choice to make. And you've got a choice to make on what you're looking at today. What you're looking at. Say this as well, you'll always find what you're focused on. You'll always find what you're focused on. Here's the reality, y'all. Everybody, if you're married, everybody has marriage problems. All right, just, just for the record. If you're married, everybody has marriage problems. Somebody needs to repent. <laughs> um, If you have finances, everyone has financial problems. If you have a home or a dwelling place, everybody has home problems. If you have a career or a vocation, everyone has career problems. If you have a family, everyone has family problems. If you have a church, every church has got church problems. Problems are endless. They're always going to be here. They will be here forever. If you have health, you're going to have health problems. If you have a mind, you are going to have mental problems. If you have an emotional, if you are an emotional being, you will have emotional problems. Problems seem to be forever. But what are you going to look at? What are you going to look at? What are you going to focus your attention on? I'm not saying ignore all the things that are bad in your life. Show up on Sunday morning. How you doing, brother? Well, bless God, I'm doing fine and dandy and wonderful and everything in the name of Jesus is just glorious in my life. You can be honest about your situation and about your reality, but you choose what you're going to look at. You choose what you're going to focus on. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 would say this, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We're going to look at him. We're going to put our attention on him. We're going to focus on him. We're going to put our gaze on him. There's a million things that we could look at today, but we're going to look at him. We're going to look at him and we're going to focus our attention on him. The psalmist would say this in Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep... The Lord, the Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And he says, I'm going to lift my eyes into the hills from where my help comes from. Can I break this down? For you? This isn't in my notes, but I feel like I just want to break this down for you. This is an amazing, this is an amazing metaphor. Um, back in the day, uh, back in the day, ancient times, um, there were no cell phones. There were no radios. There were no, like, uh, you couldn't text and get live updates from uh, CNN and from news if your king was off to battle. 
Um, it was actually kind of a, a place where you were in a significant level of fear and desperation because if your king went off to battle, uh, there was really no way to understand or to know um, whether or not your king was winning or whether or not your king was losing. And so you operated in your city with expectation, hoping that he was going to win, but not really knowing what was, the outcome was going to be. So he says, I'll, I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. So here's what would happen. Back in the ancient days, uh, someone would be anticipating every day, would be looking towards the hills, waiting for someone to come. They saw the army leave. They saw the king leave. They saw everybody go off to battle. But someone keeps with eager anticipation looking towards the hills, waiting for the messenger to come, waiting for the king to come back with news. And, and here's what the psalmist is saying. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Here, here's what he's saying. I'm, I'm not going to be living in fear. I'm not going to be living in desperation. I'm not going to be living in anxiety. I'm going to be keeping my gaze and keeping my eyes looking forward to the king who's coming, who I know is going to win and who's going to deliver victory for me. And I'm going to lift my eyes to the hills. That's what it means. You've got to decide what you're going to focus on. You've got to decide what you're going to look at. Here's how I say it. This is one of the values of the bridge. We have big faith and big prayers and big worship because we have a big God. We have a big God. Here's what's also true. If you have a little God, you'll have little faith, you'll have little prayers, and you'll have little worship because you have a little God. But we have a big God. Part of my job, part of my responsibility every week is to awaken you to the realities of who God is and to remind you that he is freaking huge. He is so huge. He is so amazing. And part of my job is just to help remind you of that, to think of that and to know that. Because if you have a big God, you're going to have some big faith, big prayers, and big worship. It's how we get through life. It's how we get through life. And then he says this in verse 10. Because of who our God is and because of what he has done, then this is true of us. And this is from the lips of God. He says this, verse 10. Be still. Everybody say still. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations without your help. I will be exalted in the earth without your help. It doesn't matter. I will be. That's what's true of me. Therefore, you can be still in your current circumstances, in your situation. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts. What's hosts? It means the stars. That God, that God, he made the stars. That one, the one who made the stars, Pleiades, the one who made the planets, Jupiter, all those. The one that, the God that came up with those and made those, it was his idea, and he actually has the power to do that. That God, he's with us. He's, he's, he's with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I love this idea of be still. We're, we're contrasting today still over speed. If, the, if speed is the mentality of our culture, then still is the opposite of that. Here's what still means literally in the Hebrew. It means this. It means to refrain. It means to let alone. It means to do Nothing. And be quiet. Here's what God is offering you. Be still. Refrain. Stop it. Just stop it. Do nothing. Be still. 
let him be God. Do you at any point in your day or your week have stillness before God? You're thinking of excuses. No, Ethan, I got four kids. I got you. No, Ethan, if you only only understood my job. Ethan, I've got three jobs and I'm in school right now. Is there any point in your day where you practice stillness before the Lord? Be quiet. Do you remember when the last time something was quiet in your life? When's the last time you were in the car and you just didn't even turn on the radio? We're so filled with noise and traffic and cars and TV and headphones and noise and noise and noise. We're hustling. We're running from one thing to the next. There's virtually no stopping, no silence, and no stillness. Why are we so active? Why are we so busy? Why do we have to do everything that we're doing? What is it that you're looking for? What is it that your soul is longing for? Why can't you be still? And I'll say it this way. We can be still because God is active. If you believe that God is active, if you believe that God is God, if you believe that he's the one who's actually accomplishing what you need in your life, then you can be still. It really comes down to trust. The only way to be still is if you actually trust that God's got it. Some of you don't trust that God's got it. So how do we be still? The hope today and the heart today is for us to find stillness and to practice stillness in opposition to speed. We look at the life of Jesus. We look at the life in order We see this pattern, we see this practice, and then we get the opportunity to follow Jesus in this practice. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, that it's what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. Not that you just believe that he existed, but you actually live the way that he lived. You actually follow him. We look at his pattern, we look at his practice, and we see this. I'll read several verses for you. Mark chapter 1, verse 32 says this. Jesus is in Capernaum doing ministry. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed or oppressed by demons. And get this, the whole city. That's like a revival. That's like every preacher's dream. The whole city was gathered together at the door. They're literally at Simon's house. This is Peter. They're at Peter's house. This is amazing. And everybody's showing up, and a revival is breaking out. And it says, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. So many they can't even keep count. They can't even keep track. The whole city is coming to him, the city of Capernaum. And then it says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he went ninja mode, he departed and went out to a desolate place, And there he prayed, and get this, I love this part. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. This is, I love this about Jesus. He's got so much ministry that's happening. This isn't, 
You, we need to understand that this doesn't mean you, your life is never crazy. Your life is never busy. You're, you never got a lot of things going on. Jesus often had a lot of things going on in ministry. But this is what Jesus would do. He, he would practice this. He'd be overwhelmed by people. He'd be overwhelmed by ministry. And then he'd sneak out the back door. He'd sneak out while nobody was looking. It says he got up while it was still dark. Y'all, that is, that is early. That is early. Anybody get up before the sun comes out? I mean, like, you are a freakish kind of individual. How in the world do you do that? I mean, this is, this is crazy. Jesus escapes like a ninja, and he walks out the back door. Even early in the morning, he was super quiet. So Simon, so Peter, so Matthew, so John, so James, so none of them knew that he was getting up. It says that he, got, he, he went away and he left, and he found a desolate place. Here's what this word desolate means. The Greek word here for desolate is the word haremia or haremos. It means this, a largely uninhabited region, which means there aren't many people out there. A largely uninhabited region. It can be translated as desert, wilderness, or lonely place. The desolate place was the regular rhythm in the pattern and the practice of Jesus' life. Everybody's looking for him Revival's breaking out. He's doing amazing ministry. He is preaching sermons like never before, and everybody is showing up. And then he just leaves. He just escapes, which means he disappointed people. Everybody wakes up in the morning, they get their cup of coffee, and they're like, did you hear what happened last night? You hear about that guy named Jesus? Did you hear about that guy? He came into Capernaum, and he was over at Peter's house, and did you hear everything that he did? That guy is amazing. Get your cup of coffee. We're going to go back over there. We're going to see what this thing is all about. Everybody shows up the next morning. They're like, hey, where's Jesus? And the disciples are like, I don't know. And then they go, go looking, and they finally find him. It's like spiritual hide and seek. They find him, and when they get to him, uh, they're like, hey, Jesus, by the way, everybody is looking for you. And then if you would read on, Jesus says he just went to the next town or the next city. Jesus regularly disappointed people. I believe if he lived today, I imagine he wouldn't be very accessible. If he had a smartphone, I doubt you'd be able to get in touch with him regularly. Some of you are like, I'm going to throw my smartphone in the trash. I'm with you. I've been trying to figure out a way that I could live and operate and do my job and live without a smartphone. I haven't figured it out yet. But here, I'll say it this way. Sometimes in order to please God, you have to disappoint people. Sometimes in order to please God, you got to disappoint people. The demands of people will never end. They will never end. People will not be happy with you. You didn't text them back. You didn't call them back. You didn't show up. You didn't show up to the kid's birthday party. <gasps> you didn't show up to their party. Now, granted, you should love people. You should love people in your community. If somebody's in your community group, you kind of have a little bit of an obligation to show up at the birthday party. But Jesus didn't show up at everything that people needed him to show up to. Jesus never tried to meet the demands of people because he was primarily concerned and more concerned with meeting the demands of God. You will either spend your life trying to meet the demands of people or meeting the demands of God. And you've got to pick what you're going to do. And Jesus practiced stillness, which means he could have discipled more people. He could have hung out with more people. He could have healed more people, but he needed to be still with God. He needed to be still with God. He needed to get away. He needed to spend some time with God because it was in the desolate place that he was refreshed. 
It was in the desolate place that he met God. It was in the desolate place, the quiet place, the still place, the alone place that he found from God. He received from God what he needed to live, needed to do for the rest of his ministry and the rest of his life. Are you more concerned about disappointing people or disappointing God? And you'll either live by the demands and under the demands of people or under the demands of God. Matthew 6, 30 through 32 says this. Do I have enough time, y'all? Got some time? We got some time. Matthew, sorry, Mark 6, rather. Mark 6, 30 through 32 says this. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. They're like, man, revival was breaking out. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I'm sure somebody was like, um, I'm sure one of the disciples was like, Jesus, we got more ministry to do. And he just told them to stop. Stop. You need, you need to take a break. You need to come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. They didn't even have time to eat. Does that sound familiar to anybody? They didn't even have time to eat, and they didn't have fast food back then. We don't even have time to stop and eat for dinner. We have so many people. Ministry is going so well. Our jobs, our business, our profession, there is so many demands. And it says, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Which means if you've always looked for a verse to validate your desire for a boat, here it is. They went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Pastor Ethan, I thought you were like hating on boats last week. I kind of was, but in this place, Jesus says they got in a boat. Luke 5, Luke 5, 15 says this. Luke 5, 15 and 16. But now even more the report about him went abroad. More people are talking about him. More people are posting on social media. It is going viral at this point. Great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. These people are sick. They've got illnesses. They've got diseases. They need to be healed. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That's crazy. I mean, the demands of ministry, the demands of life for Jesus only increased and increased and increased. More people need him. More people need his help. More people need his touch. But for Jesus, when life got more busy... He did not decrease his time for the desolate place, but rather increased it. Say it this way. As your demands increase, so does your need for the desolate place. When life gets crazy and life gets busy, the last thing that you should ever cut is your time with God. You need God. You need to hear from him. You need to be with him. You just need to be still for a little while. You just need to go for a walk. You need to go for a walk. You need to go to the beach without anybody. You need to go for a bike ride. You need to hike in the woods. You need to get away and spend some time with God. Jesus would also talk about your prayer closet. Get in your prayer closet when nobody else is looking and close the door behind you and just get with me. Just get with me and spend some time with me because you need me for life. And you definitely need me for ministry and for what I've called you to. Which means as your demands increase, so does your need for the desolate place. I remember Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he said one time something along the lines of, I have so much to do today that is on my agenda, I must spend three to four hours in prayer before I begin. 
He understood that when his demands increased, his demand for the desolate place increased as well. We see this in Matthew 4, verse 1. This one is awesome. You're going to love this. Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus is at the beginning. He's at the inception of his ministry. This is right after the time he's been baptized. And then it says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, meaning by the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness. That word there for wilderness is the same word for desolate place, haremos. Led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I always thought Jesus was in a weak place in the wilderness. I always thought that Jesus, he was fasting for 40 nights and 40 days. I always thought that Jesus in the wilderness here was in a weak place. You ever thought that? Was in a vulnerable place? Like didn't have everything that he needed? It was a little bit short on gas, a little bit short on fuel, a little bit short on, on energy. And therefore the, the devil came and tempted him in the middle of his weakness. That's what I used to think. That I've always thought this was a weak place in the wilderness. But if you pay attention to the text, the wilderness was intentional for Jesus. Jesus was actually going into battle, and the Holy Spirit sent him to be tempted. Which means uh, Jesus knew that he was going to be tempted, and therefore he's fasting and praying. He's going to enter into the desolate place because his, he knows that his first fight is going to be against the enemy. And I would argue that Jesus is not in a weak place, but he's in a strong place getting ready for battle. The desert place, the wilderness for Jesus, gave him the strength necessary to fight the battle that he was getting ready to fight. You could say it this way. The desolate place is not a place of spiritual weakness, but a place of spiritual strength. It's a place of spiritual strength. It's where you get renewed. It's where you get refreshed. It's where you get the energy. It's where you get the impetus. It's where you get the desire. It's where you get the passion. It's where you get the fortitude to fight the kind of battles that you're going to face today. The still, the still space, the quiet place, the the wilderness place, the desolate place. And Jesus, in the wilderness, wasn't at his lowest place spiritually, but rather he was at his highest place spiritually. So here's what this means. What is stillness? Stillness really means silence, silence and solitude. It means to be quiet. It means to stop. It, needs, it, mean, it means to practice the ability to be still before the Lord, to be silent, to stop doing anything, to, to spend some quality time with the Lord. I love what John Mark Comer, pastor in Oregon, he says this, silence and solitude. Here's what it is. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. This is what silence and solitude mean. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. Henry Nouwen, the Catholic theologian, he would say this, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. So here's what this is. This is a practice. This is a way to get your life in order. This is a practice of Jesus. This is a pattern of Jesus. It's the practice of silence. It's the practice of solitude. It's the practice of withdrawing. It's escaping. It's getting away to a quiet place, to a desolate place, all by yourself all by yourself, to spend time with God, to find your prayer closet, to get in it and to close the door and to have the absence of noise in the presence of God, to have the absence of people in the presence of God, to have the absence of this world in the presence of the Spirit in your life. And I kind of wonder that some of us that are always on our phones, that always have the TV on, that are always busy, that are always noisy, that never practice any kind of silence or stillness. I wonder if some of us are afraid of silence because of what we might find in the silence. It 
if you can just keep yourself busy and occupied, you never actually have to go there. You never actually have to be vulnerable before God. You never have to actually sit there and listen to God. You ever scared of what God might tell you in stillness? Sometimes I'm scared. I'm like, oh, I'm going to spend some time with the Lord. I'm going to pray. Um, sometimes, honestly, I'm like, um, God, I don't want you to tell me anything that's going to cost me anything. The only thing that I want to hear right now in the stillness are your sweet pleasantries of life and of my life and how you're going to bless me and how you're going to reward me. Please don't call me to do anything or ask me to do anything. It feels like that's all I'm doing my entire life. Sometimes I think that we're a little afraid of what we might find in the stillness what God might put his finger on, what God might challenge, what God might provoke. See, silence and solitude forces us to face ourselves and face God. Forces us to face ourselves and face God. When's the last time you really faced yourself? Looked yourself in the mirror. Did an internal reckoning with your life, with where you're at. And I would say that most of the time when we do that in those opportunities, it only leads to condemnation. That's what happens when you only face yourself. But I'm arguing for not only facing yourself, but also facing God. The beautiful thing about when you face yourself and when you're with God and when you're facing God, you look in the mirror and you see some things in the mirror, but then God speaks through the mirror, metaphorically speaking. Speaks over that. Things that you think, the things that are going on in your heart, the things that are restless, the things that there's anxiety, there's, there's trouble, there's, there's fret, there's restlessness, and then let God speak into that moment. Um, I loved when, this is kind of how I can gauge whether or not I'm like really practicing this well, is by um, how often I just go for a walk. Um, when we first planted the church, we planted the church almost five years ago. We're coming up on five years this fall, which is crazy. A few dozen of us, um, a few dozen crazy people had this idea to start this thing called the Bridge Church and to believe God and to hope God, to see what God would do to bring change to our city and to see people come and find Jesus and to know Jesus and to find healing and, and hope and, and help from him. And it's been an amazing thing that God has done. But I remember in the, in the early days, um, as a church planner, as, as, a, as a new emerging pastor, um, You've got, a lot of, um, you've got a lot of time on your hands. <laughs> not that there's not a lot of things to do. There's usually just you and another person trying to get everything done. There's a lot, lot to get done. But I remember in those days, it seemed like the demands were less. I remember when we moved into this space, moved into this building, I would have my office in the back. And usually about once or twice a day, I would just step out of the office, sometimes leave my phone. My wife hated that. Leave my phone and step out of the building and walk down uh, the park here. We, Wallace Park is uh, this way. Burnt Mill Creek is right beside us, and it's actually an incredible walk. And I would just get outside and go for a walk with no agenda other than just to listen and to hear from God. And I remember many days on those walks with the midst, in the midst of ministry expectation, in the midst of ministry frustration, wondering what was going to happen, what was ever going to come of this thing. Was it going to work? Was it not going to work? And I remember in those times just going for a walk without anybody, without any distraction, and just listening and thinking and facing myself and facing God. And it's in those moments that the Lord encourages you. 
It's in those moments that the Lord strengthens you. It's in those moments that the Lord speaks to you in a way that nobody else can speak to you. It's in those moments where the Lord gives you what your soul needs. And even though life may be chaotic and life may be crazy, it's in those moments where you receive just enough from God to keep going one step in front of the other. This is stillness. Stillness over speed. And so at this point, you are waiting and hoping for the formula that I'm going to give you in order to be able to practice stillness in your life. What would it look like for you to practice stillness and solitude on a regular basis? I am not going to give you a formula. I'm not going to give you a legalistic checklist that if you actually meet these expectations, you therefore then are practicing stillness in your life. I can't do that. This looks way different from a single college student than it does to a married mom with four children or a single mom with one child or someone that's retired or someone that has just got married or someone that's engaged. I can't give you the recipe or the formula for what this looks like, but ask yourself this question. What would it look like for me to practice silence and solitude on a regular basis? What would it look like? What would it look like for you to eliminate some noise in your life? you immediately thought of two people that you want to get rid of your life. I wasn't speaking of people necessarily. But how can you eliminate noise in your life? How can you eliminate distraction in your life? What are the things that are consuming your time? If you have an iPhone, there's this thing that's called screen time. It's a new feature that Apple came out with that is incredibly uh, devastating whenever you look at it. It's actually an app. Some of you will actually get a notification in the middle of this sermon because they send the notification out on Sunday mornings for the previous week in your screen time. What is your screen time like this past week? If you've got kids, what, is your, what does time with your kids look like? Any, you, you, you know you're like in a bad place when you're reading, read, I've done this confession, you're reading your, your child a bedtime story and you skip a page just to get to the end? Isn't that terrible? I'm like, they're only five. They're not going to know that I skipped a page. I'm just going to jump down this paragraph real quick, and they'll never even know. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, they will never find out. Don't even have time to slow down and read the whole story to our kids. How can you create intentional separation from yourself and the world? How can you do this? Maybe I could offer a couple recommendations. Um, figure out a time, morning, evening, noon, lunch break, this day, this particular day, every day, every now and then, going to schedule it, and I'm just going to go for a walk. Whatever your prayer closet is, I'm going to find that place, a, a place that I can be alone. Maybe for you it's 5 a.m., maybe for you it's 11 p.m., I'm just going to get away and practice some, some stillness. Um, we talked about Sabbath last Sunday and how these so beautifully merge together. The Sabbath is that weekly stillness. This is a more regular daily practice of, of stillness and stopping. How about this? Leave your phone in the car when you go eat in a restaurant. Like, literally, you sit in a restaurant and it's like 30 people in there and 27 of them are looking at their screens. I read, a, I, read a, I read a surgeon this past week that says 
So many people these days are actually having neck and back pain because they're looking down at their phones. And when you look down at your phones, your neck is actually at a 60-degree angle. It increases the, the weight of your head on your neck by like five times. It's producing all sorts of different kinds of physical illnesses, even in our bodies, even in the, the bodies of teenagers. Restaurants, bedtime. I started this new practice where I don't go to bed with my phone. I leave, the, I leave my phone downstairs. This was, I, was, I, was coming up, I was coming up to bed uh, with my wife, and I'm sitting, sitting in my bed. I'm looking at my phone, and she's looking at her phone for 45 minutes while the TV's on. I'm like, this is not good. This is not good. I didn't have the discipline and the control to not do it, so I just left it downstairs. Leave it downstairs. Leave it somewhere else. Bedtime routines. Morning person, night owl, whatever. What does this look like for you? Sabbath. How could you practice this? And here's how I'll close. Why do we assume that we can have a quality relationship with God without spending quality time alone with him? If you look at the relationships in your life, specifically romantic relationships or marriage relationships, friendship relationships, or even workplace relationships, those relationships and the quality of those relationships are almost entirely built on the, time, the kind of time that you spend together in those relationships. Why do we assume that we can have a quality relationship with God without spending quality alone, quality time alone with him? What does this look like for you? Okay, let's pray.